It's a little bit bittersweet sweet for me to be hearing my son and my daughter uh, do a duet, knowing that it's probably going to take a, a while um, before they can do it again. And we are, in, our, in my household, transitioning to a new phase in our life uh, together as a family where Micah will no longer be coming home every night to our home. And somehow I'm still having a hard time with that. And I think I will be for a while. But it's an exciting time for our family and an exciting time as well in the life of my, our son who is about to, uh, to go to college in just a couple of weeks' time, probably, I think, a little bit less. Uh, he and mom will be heading down south and I'll, and I'll be holding down the fort at home, staying with uh, our daughter. We have to have a split camp and mom will make sure that everything will be uh, set right over there at La Sierra where my son will be studying and where he will be staying and so on. How life does change, doesn't it? And life does not stop or change does not, uh, does not stop for anyone. Today we begin another journey, another sort of like, uh, in a way, a change in our, in our church family in that we are about to start or are starting a, another sermon series. This one will take us through the, the entire book of Acts. I've never done a, a series quite this long. It's going to be 28 full chapters of the book of Acts. So um, I'm begging you now, don't leave midway through uh, the series because this is going to be pro- perhaps the longest series we will have gone through together by the time it's over. The book of Acts, all 28 chapters of it, and today is more or less a preliminary to, to the book of Acts. Uh, we're going through, or we, we are going to the book of Luke, which is basically the prequel or the first volume in the two-volume set that we know as Luke-Acts, written by the same uh, author, the same writer uh, the, uh, um, who we believe to be um, <clears throat> Dr. Luke one of Paul's associates, one of the second-generation Christians in, the first, in first century Christianity. And today's uh, uh, scripture is found in Luke chapter, chapter 10, in that beautiful text that contains some of the best uh, parables that we know, or prob- probably the best, one of the best, if not the best parable that we know about, the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and other things. But I, our focus is on that part of the text, which occupies the first uh, half of the verses in that chapter. It has to do with Jesus Christ sending 70, or as your, our modern um, uh, translations uh, put it, 72 um, of these Jesus' disciples, sending them out to... Um, to the uh, to the, the communities surrounding Judea and 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 and, um, and Galilee, uh, where God's people were, and it's very instructive that we start there because, as we know, as as I've just said, the author of, of Acts is also the author of Luke, and the theology behind the, that that informs the book of Acts is also the theology that informs the book of Luke, and a big part of that theology has to do with mission. And evangelism. And today and, and throughout the entire series, I'm going to be interchangeably using those two words um, as though they're one and the same or as though they're synonymous because to me they are pretty much, if we understand them correctly, synonymous. Mission and evangelism. I'm very cognizant of the fact as well that we have missionaries among us and they've just come back as well. That's Ken and, and, and Ivan at Osborne. Katie White, 
is a, is, is a name that is familiar to me and it's familiar to my wife. Not so much to my kids, our kids, because Katie White came to our lives almost as quickly as she left it before the kids came along. Five years before Micah came along and eight before my, Havila came along. But Katie came into our lives as quickly as, almost as quickly as she left our lives about one and a half to two years. It was summer of 2000 in the small San Diego, San Diego suburb of, 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 of La Mesa, just five miles uh, east of San Diego State University where we, uh, my wife and I, my, my bride, we were newlyweds back then when we first moved back to San Diego where, where my own family lives. Katie moved in next door a few weeks after we did um, in the apartment complex we, we, uh, um, we lived we lived in, and she had a baby boy by the name of Little D. Little D, of course, had a dad, and his name was Big D. Um, and he was away most of the time. He was away on ship deployment because both of them, Katie and Big D, that would be Duane, Duane, they're both, they were both in the Navy. This meant that Katie was practically a single mom most of the time. And over the course of time, we became Katie's family, away from home. Julie and I stepped into the void. She's from Texas. Both of them were from Texas. And I can still remember that mild southern drawl that, and, uh, that Katie had, and, and she'd say y'all to everybody. Um, but Julie and I stepped into the void, and uh, it wasn't too long before we befriended Katie, or maybe Katie befriended us. Katie had a very easy way about her. She had an easy smile, long, flowy, um, um, blonde hair, blue eyes. Amazingly uh, mature for her age, she couldn't have been more than 20, 21 years old. She was 19. Wives remember dates and, and age just really well. Better than we do, men. So. And she's been in the Navy for about a year or two. And amazingly, very mature. She already had a kid at age 19, going on 20. And she opened up her life to us as we opened up our, our lives to her, to her. She welcomed us. She received us. And she let us pour into her life as she poured into ours. We shared meals together with Katie. We took her out to eat. We went to the park playing with her kid. We met some of her um, Navy buddies, friends. And we even babysat little D. Well, whenever she, was, she had to go work graveyard shift at the, at the, at the base. And there were a lot of those um, graveyard shifts when we ended up taking care of little D. Our little D. And some of those days, as a matter of fact, when Julie had to work and, um, and Katie had to work day shift, I was the only one left at home, and so I took care of little D. And I did that. We did that for a while. She let us into her life as we let her into ours. And Julie and I became her family away from home. And then things started to fall apart. 
Katie started complaining of the rampant immorality, she says, in the naval base. I suppose we've all heard about the life of the sailors. And her marriage fell victim to that. And we watched Katie's easy smile disappear. And we watched her marriage fall apart. She fought hard to save her marriage. But the problems were just too big, way too big, even for us to help her with. Katie and little D moved out of their apartment, and we saw less and less of uh, Katie and little D, and of course, much less of big D. And then one day, we got a call. It was Katie, and she said goodbye. She was saying goodbye to Julie and me. He said, thank you for everything. I love you guys very much. You've been family to me. I'm going back to Texas now. My, my days with the Navy are over. And that was the last we heard of, of Katie. We still think of Katie after so many years. It's been over 20 years. And little D is about 23 years, years old by now. Older than our Micah. And I can still see little D when she, he was a toddler, two and a half years old, and, you know, doing the jive, doing the jive talking and the, the jive walking like his dad used, used to do. And he learned that really well from dad. I could still see little D do all that stuff. But he's 23 years old by now. And um, I could still see Katie's blue eyes sparkle with, with joy when, when little D would do the jive walking. You know, you know how they do it. I don't know quite how to do it, you know. But the jive walking and, and a little bit of the jive talking um, as dad taught him really well. Her name was Katie White. She was our person of peace. She came into our lives and we still think a lot about her after 20 years. And we would like to think that perhaps God found another Christian couple in Texas to pick up after, uh, after ourselves, pick up where we had left off. And I'd like to think that just as we, have found, uh, we had found um, Katie White, our person of peace, that they also would have found her just the same. Because Katie White to us was a person of peace. The average Christian doesn't have any friends who aren't Christians already. And I think that is true even among us Adventists. We spend most of our time clustered around our school and our church communities for, for, for very good reasons, cloistered, as it were, in our Adventist tribe and even cloistered in a smaller huddle called our Auburn Adventist sub-tribe. Or if you belong to another church, maybe it is Grace Point sub-tribe, or Grass Valley, or Weimar, or Granite Bay. This is very true of me as well. I am a pastor. I live my life in and around this community, this church community. Most of my time is spent up and down Bell Road, that corridor between the church and the school, it seems like. 
and the rest of my time I spend with you. I don't have a whole lot of friends outside of this community. People that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And most of the people I know who are already here perhaps also live a similar kind of life. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot. I'm not complaining with life inside the bubble. There's a lot going on in here between home and church and school. That's 99% of my life, of your life. I, my, my wife sent me, texted to me, my daughter's schedule from our school's athletic director, and it's intense. That's just the athletics. And my family and I are spending a lot of our time supporting our daughter these days. And I suspect that will be the case um, throughout her high school education and even beyond. But that's just one schedule. That doesn't include the choir schedule and this beautiful and wonderful project that my daughter has taken on, which, is, uh, which involves literally her class. My daughter decided to research the life of my father. And I cannot tell you how much that means to me. But also how much that has stirred up a lot of conflicting emotions in my life. It took me several days to recover from that news. After I finally sat down with my daughter to, to give her a rundown of the life of my dad. Because you see, I come from a very broken family. And the wounds still sting. And our Adventist school bubble is about to get larger still to include La Sierra University, where Ron is and where my son will be. So, as I said, he and mom will be driving down to SoCal to get him situated at La Sierra in a couple of weeks there in Riverside while I hold down the fort with my daughter here for a couple of days. And being a pastoral family, the rest of our time, the rest of our time is spent with you. As it should be. After all, that's why you called me here, to be your pastor. And what little precious time we have left, we want to spend cloistered in our own home. Wouldn't you? And that, I think, is the typical Adventist family. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's all good stuff. But how do we find time to evangelize when life is already so full within our bubble? How do we find time to evangelize? And, and, and that's a big word, to evangelize. Like a big load on our shoulder to convert the world or something like that. Evangelize, such a, such a heavy word, a good word, but one that's laden with so much meaning, good and bad. So excuse me if I refrain from using too much of that word, not because it's bad, but because of the connotations of some. I'm going to be using more of the word mission. Mission. How do we find time to, to reach out to people who don't know Jesus already? When we're all too busy with good life, 
life in the kingdom. And here's the bigger problem. We hardly know anyone outside of the tribe. At least that is the case with me. My wife knows more people outside of the tribe than me because she works not for, for the church, although she does work for the church. She's your unpaid third pastor. <laughs> we all know that. We hardly know anyone outside of the tribe. Why do we, who do we talk to? Where do we even start to, 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 to be a missionary where we are? It's a very daunting task to share Jesus when we don't have enough time. And worse, if we don't know anyone who isn't a Christian already. What do we do? We usually think of evangelism as an event we participate in. If we have time left. And mission as some, something we do, uh, we go abroad to do. Like, I wish I could do, sometimes you could just maybe make me your lackey, uh, Ken and Ivanette, and I'll, I'll, I'll shine your boots, I'll cook your meals, I'll do anything. Just take me with you for free. <laughs> I would die to be a missionary. I used to dream of becoming a missionary to China or Russia and those exotic places I've never been to and probably never will. But our basic problem is not just as I said, that we don't have much time left within our busy life. Our bigger problem is that we don't know anyone outside of our bubble. Anyone who doesn't already know Jesus Christ. And if we do, we don't really have a connection with them. But what if there's a better understanding of what mission is and of what evangelism means? What if evangelism is not something we do on top of a busy life, but is life itself? What if evangelism is not something, it's not something we add to our already full plate, but how we eat what's in it already? We think of evangelism as something we add on. And that is where the biggest mistake happens. Because we are too busy. And we are too busy for all the good things. We're living the life in the kingdom. Sure, of course, I want to spend a lot of my time at the school. We have a great school. And our children are our future. Of course. And here, church... You're here. I cannot complain. We spend our time here because we want to spend our time here. It's all good stuff. But what if evangelism is not something we do on top of living but is life itself? What if evangelism is not something we put on top of our plate, already full plate, but how we eat that full plate? 
And every moment of every waking hour that we have every single day, filled with the stuff we're already doing, what if those are the very opportunities we need to reach out to those who do not know Jesus? Then evangelism would be a lot easier to swallow, wouldn't it? What if waking, or walking the dog, yes, waking the dog to walk the dog. And I kid you not, I do that. I wake the dog so I can walk the dog. What if walking the dog in the morning, baking bread, or cooking your favorite dish, or doing something you love, or sitting down with, with your family for a meal, what if these things, are, these, these things that we are already doing, these aren't the things we're doing on top of living. This is what we do to live. This is what life is. What if all of these things are the very grounds for including others into our lives? Then evangelism, then mission becomes almost as easy as breathing itself. Then maybe, just maybe, we'll have a paradigm shift, a, a fundamental change in understanding, and, there, and thereby a fundamental change in our approach on how we reach out to others. A monumental shift, also a tiny shift. It doesn't require a whole lot. Maybe we'll have renewed intentionality in the way we live our busy lives to include others so we can pour into their lives and let them pour into ours. Every 6.30 in the morning these days, my dog Sequoia and I take our morning walk. I do let her out of her uh, crate. I'm not sure if she was asleep. she's asleep when I open the crate. She, it's too dark these days for me to find out. It doesn't matter. Around 6.30 in the morning, my dog and I, Sequoia, uh, take a morning walk. Um, two, sometimes three laps around, up and around Coyote Hill. So if you've been to my house, you see that you were, up, you know, we're about a third up a hill. And um, sometimes we do three laps. So one lap is about two miles. So sometimes she gets two miles, four miles walk, sometimes six. Today she only got two, given that I, I didn't have enough time. And it was raining. Um, and you know, it's something good is coming out of it. I'm, I'm, star- I'm starting to, to, to lose my love handle. Or as my wife calls it, my... <laughs> That's funny. My uh, um, muffin top. She calls it my muffin top. That's not very uh, nice to hear. But it, it, it's, it's there and anyway, so I can't hide it. Um, and, and, you know, in the process of, of, of walking my dog every morning, I've discovered several things. First is that my dog, Sequoia, is probably the healthiest dog in the neighborhood. That is assuming that everybody that walks around my, my time of the day are the only ones that walk their dogs. She gets most, uh, the most amount of walks every day. One comes close. She, uh, uh, I'll tell you about this other dog. She gets about three miles of walk. Sequoia gets four. Sometimes she gets six. Sometimes eight. And second is that I've met two other dogs. Three, as a matter of fact. I forgot the name of the third, 
third dog uh, because I only, the, 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 that dog only walks like every once, once every two weeks. The other two dogs and their humans walk every day, except that, you know, the rain has, has kept them home. It seems like I haven't seen them the last couple of days. Um, so I've discovered not only that Sequoia is probably the most walked dog and therefore the healthiest dog in the neighborhood, but also that, um, that I have company. I've, you know, we, we know the dog Phoebe, this beautiful half, uh, half uh, um, schnauzer and ha- half Rottweiler. She has the face of a schnauzer and the body of a Rottweiler. Tawny, very, very beautiful and feisty. And I just love Phoebe. And also, I love Phoebe's humans. Um, and I've also got to meet Greta. Another, another standard poodle, faded gray, not brindle like Sequoia. Um, she's older, and so she's seen it all. So she sees Sequoia, and she says, ah. Oh. And she just keeps walking while Sequoia is jumping around. Ooh, ooh, here comes Greta. Here comes Greta. They always manage to walk in the same direction, those, those two, uh, you know, uh, those two and their and their and their humans, and so what I started doing is uh, for for other reasons as well, which is you know that I started walking opposite the direction they're going. Um, it's a steeper climb because it takes me all the way up at the beginning of my walk, up the hill, and then the rest of the, t- the way down until I come around and walk up the hill again. It's a steeper climb, but I decided to do it for two reasons. More cardio, better cardio. So I found out not too long ago that I am, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, my cardio is really weak. Um, and also, I do that so that I would run into them every single time. And that we would exchange pleasantries. And that hopefully, the exchange of pleasantries would lead to other things. And now I've gotten acquainted with three dogs and they're humans and they're not objects to be won. I just want to be their friends. Their friend. They're human beings I want to get to know. And maybe if they open up their lives to me and if they will let me, I get to pour my life into them. Because that's what mission is. And I want to do more. In fact, I've become, and by the way, I appointed myself. I've become the chaplain of my neighborhood. Nobody even knows about it. (laughs) Or should I say, I want to be the chaplain of my neighborhood. Self-appointed, I'd like to say, I'd like to think Jesus appointed, but no, I appointed myself. Not to be nosy, not to be a busybody, not to be on a pedestal looking down on those poor souls needing my help. Just to be someone's friend. 
and to have the opportunity to pour my life out into others like Jesus did. And you know, I have just the perfect help. My extroverted wife, my children, and you. You see, mission and evangelism is pouring our lives out into the lives of others and letting them pour their lives into ours. That's all it is. Let's not make it be bigger than this. Mission is about extending the boundary of who we consider to be part of our family. Who we eat with. Who we walk with. Who we share our stories with. But of course, not everybody will welcome us. Not everybody will welcome you and receive you into their hearts. Only those whose hearts the Spirit is already preparing will do that to you. Not everybody will do that. And I'm still finding out which of my neighbors will do that to me. But our task is to look for a person of peace among those we come in contact with. And who are those persons of peace? They're the ones that welcome you into their home. They're the ones that receive you into their hearts. They're the ones that let you pour into their lives as they, as they pour into yours. They're the ones that like you. And they're the ones that you like. They're the ones that you connect with on a daily basis in your life. Our task is to look for a person of peace where we are. Through the years, Julie and I have had our share of persons of peace. Persons who've welcomed us into their lives and received us into their hearts, as I have said. Persons who let us pour into their lives as they pour into ours. Persons who don't suck the life out of us, but make our lives better. These are the persons we need to find. And these are the persons that God has put out there, and they are out there. They just need to be discovered. God has already gone ahead of us, putting the love of God into their hearts, waiting to be discovered by you and me. The field is full of them. We just need you and I to discover them. They are our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our friends' friends. They are the people we meet at the grocery store, at the gym, at work. And they are already there in our neighborhoods, hanging around just outside, just outside our bubble. Waiting to get in. Waiting to be discovered. You see, when we see life itself as the mission field, one person of peace will start popping up after, the, after another. We will see them. They will be there. Because God has already worked ahead of us. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. When he says he sends them out on the first recorded mission trip of any of Jesus Christ's disciples, when he sends out the 72, and he says, stay, find a person of peace and stay with that person 
Because that person becomes your gateway to a whole new world filled with people who do not know Jesus. It's our entering wedge. It's, it's a portal. It's our gateway. These persons of peace are the gatekeepers to a world of people without Christ. You only need to find one. If you can find several, that's fine. You, can only, you, you only need to find one. And one, when you find one, pour into that person your heart and soul, your life. Not so you can convert the person. Not so the person becomes an object to be, to be converted. No, those things will happen in their due time. The purpose is to shed the love of God and to become family to that person, to those persons that becomes inevitable in the due course of time by the moving of the Holy Spirit, not by your machinations, but by the moving of the Holy Spirit, they will turn their lives around and they will want what you have or who you have. When we see our life, that life itself, yes, our busy life itself, as the very mission field, our only mission field, then you start to see that those neighbors that you've taken for granted in times past, you start to look at them differently. You start to see them as people to get to know and to pour your hearts into. Live your life as a mission field. Mission and evangelism is not what we do on top of our busy life. Mission and evangelism is life itself. So start looking for those persons of peace and make them part of your family. Um, been working on uh, baking a lot of bread, as you know, and been giving them away to my neighbors as well. And there's one waiting now to be given away. I gave one just the other day to, um, uh, to um, Phoebe's humans, I don't want to call their names, to Phoebe's humans. And Greta's humans, you know, Greta hasn't, I haven't seen Greta for the last maybe week. So something is not right, either that or, uh, I don't know, hopefully the next time I see, uh, but there's a, there's a bread waiting for Greta's human in my, in my freezer. I think what I'm going to do the next time, you know, when, when, when the sun shines and the next, uh, you know, the following morning, I, I think what I'm going to do, I'm just going to carry a backpack with me and, and put one bread in there. And as soon as I see Greta, I'll give the bread to her human. That's what I'm going to do. Because I'm on a mission to be a chaplain of my community. Not to win one for the Gipper, but to be the embodiment of gospel to everyone I meet and leave the converting to the Holy Spirit who alone can do it anyway. This is what mission to me is like. I don't know if that's what you teach your uh, missionaries, Ken, Ivanette. I'm, I have a, I have a feel, thinking feeling that it's very similar to what I say up here. I could be wrong. 
This is why you don't need to leave your places of work. You don't have to go to the far-flung places to be a missionary. You're a missionary just because you're alive. And, you know, this shift in understanding then, you know, becomes, there's, a, there's another paradigm shift that, that, that follows that, and that is this, that, you know, the response, you know, the pressure is, the pressure is off our back, you know, the, the burden's off our back to try to produce results, to try to, you know, have so many baptisms, which I know in certain parts of the world, in our Adventist world, that that is still very much a reality. I'm not saying to never baptize anybody, but, you know, I, 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 I know of pastors, friends of mine who I graduated with who are stressed out because they have to meet quota. And some of the conversations I'm having with some of my friends across the world who I graduated with and some of the abuses that happened because of that quota. People aren't quota. And evangelism is not an event. It's your life. And how you live your life will determine if others will see the love of Jesus Christ broadcast in you and through you and poured into the life of others. There is another paradigm shift that follows this first paradigm shift, and that is that we start to see mission, we start to see that in mission and evangelism, big is not necessarily good because in evangelism, in real evangelism, in real mission, small is big. And not only is small big, not only is small big, but slow is fast. And not only is slow fast, but deep is wide. And not only is deep wide, that multiplication through that portal, through that person of peace, multiplication always wins the day. It may take a lifetime. When you start seeing evangelism this way, a big load will fall off your backs and you will accept your commission as a witness more readily than you have. For you see, a person, a person of peace, as I said, is a gatekeeper, a portal to another world, a mission field, field filled with people who do not know Jesus Christ. Find one, and you get to be a Narnian. Find one, and you get to be a Narnian. You get to enter that portal into Narnia. Find your person of peace. They're closer to you than you think. This is what we want to do as we re-envision what it is like a hundred years, century after our own Auburn church was founded. What it would have meant, I mean, what it, was, what it might have been to them, what it was like for them to be a house church. 
to rediscover what it means to be a house church again. This is why we're starting this a pilot project based out of my house, the 1923 project to rekindle that fire, that pioneering fire that started our church as a house church in somebody's garage a hundred years ago. What would it be like for, for, for Auburn Church to become a network of house churches where you have every single one of you finding, looking for your person of peace so you can go get into that portal, that open door of possibilities to multiply the kingdom of God one person at a time. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I always do that. Because I spend my day thinking, planning, and you know, stuff like that. That's what I do. And sometimes the mistake I make is that I think that you're thinking along with me all the time. And when I'm up here talking about what I've been thinking, you're like, what? What is he saying? Where is he going with this? What is, where is he coming from with this? You know, and I don't real, I didn't, you know, it's, sometimes it's, it's lost to me that what I'm thinking is not what you're thinking during the day. I'm a pastor. That's what I do. I think about these things all the time, so forgive me if I find it hard sometimes to come down to earth with my ideas. But wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice for Auburn Church to become that church again to rediscover our roots and go back to being a network of house churches? But let's not get ahead of myself. Um, I... um, I am looking for my own person of peace. I've told you that already, and I'm working on several individuals that I've, I've met that's local to my neighborhood. And someday very soon, we will be starting, as a matter of fact, uh, here's the date, September 16, 6 p.m. at my house. That's when the training begins. For who? For people who will help me find or search for persons of peace in our neighborhood. If you're interested in having me pour into you, into your life, and perhaps study with you and even teach you or even remind you how to become a missional Christian, come to my house. It's an open invitation. I'd like to see all of you there. I'm not sure if I can feed all of you. But two things will be there. Two things will be there. One is a book that we're already ready to, uh, to uh, study together. It's called The Table I Long For. Um, the, um, my friend Kevin Robert gave us 12 copies of this for free. I tried to buy it from him and said, no, 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 no. You're not buying it from me. You're, you're, you're doing what I want you to do. So 12 of these, the first 12 that shows up at my house gets to have one of these books. And we're going to go through this book and study this book and make this book like, not the Bible, but maybe the church manual. I don't know. And another thing too, and I'll make this promise only to the first 12. There will be a loaf of bread waiting for you at my house. But it won't be a loaf of bread that you're going to take home with you. 
It's going to be, a lo- and it's going to be free, by the way. Those bread out there, are there for donation to help out our evangelism and our mission fund. The Maryland Heron Discipleship and Evangelism Fund, that's what it's called. But the bread that will be waiting for you at my house on September 16, 6 p.m. will be free. That'll be the only time it will be free in any way um, for as long as we're doing the, the uh, um, fundraiser. But I don't want you to take it home. Well, I do want you to take it home, but not to eat. We're going to take the time to pray that the Lord would reveal to you at my house, that the Lord will reveal to you your person of peace or your potential person of peace and that you are going to use that bread, you're going to deliver that bread to that person, courtesy of me. That is how we're going to start this project. And to be honest with you, I am very nervous because I don't know how it's going to end up. But you know what? I think that's the best way to go because I'm not in control. If this project is within the will of the Holy Spirit, He will cause this project to prosper. If not, it will just fade away. But let it be known, I'm looking for my persons of peace, you, to help me find a few persons of peace out in the neighborhood. Have you seen one? Are you my person of peace? I guess I'll have to find out come September 16. And I want to lose some sleep over it. I really do. But I'm not going to. Because if the Holy Spirit is leading this, you will come. And we'll be waiting for you. It's always my privilege and an honor as pastor to be able to speak here in front of you every single Sabbath. I want to just thank you for being here and sharing in that joy. Um, and so let me uh, pronounce God's blessing upon you um, as, as we leave. Bow your heads. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord smile from ear to ear, seeing your face. And may he be filled with joy as you are in his presence. In Jesus' name. Amen.